Um, hello. Hi, Matt Erb. Uh, you are an integrative uh, physical therapist from what I've heard. And uh, welcome to Arash's world here, um, where I love to talk about a lot of things that you are practicing. So I, I'm more interested in the theory, but also in the practice. And I'll talk a bit more about this in a moment. But thank you for being here. And um, I'd like you to just quickly tell everyone what you do. What is an integrative physical therapist? What does his day or her day look like? What does your day look like? Yeah, okay. Well, I'm sure that for anyone who might be using that label, their day probably looks a little different. Uh, but I would start with saying that ultimately long-term, my hope is that the word integrative could actually fall aside uh, and not be um, differentiated from other aspects of healthcare that we would see emerging of our, the best of our biomedical world with the best of uh, integral minded healthcare approaches and theories and systems. Uh, I don't know if that'll happen. And currently the word integrative is used to denote uh, healthcare practitioners <clears throat> who embrace a whole person approach, but go beyond just whole person into uh, larger levels of interdependence uh, within living systems. So we sometimes use the phrase body, mind, environment sort of as a, a complex set of interacting factors. And so for myself, <clears throat> using that word as a, a physiotherapist, and I, I'm shifting from physical therapist to physiotherapist for a reason. The U.S. is one of the only <clears throat> countries in the in the world that uses physical therapist as opposed to physiotherapist, which uh, you know all European Eastern countries, Canada, <clears throat> use physio. And I like that because the word physical itself reinforces the tendency to split physical. Um, concepts of physical healthcare away from the mind, cognitive, mental, emotional, even spiritual facets of being human. And so physio is a little bit closer to physiological, <clears throat> which encompasses a much broader sense of uh, us as living beings. And so mind-body integrated care is an integrative physiotherapist. Uh, a starting point for me is, is uh, mind-body integrated care. And my clinical practice focuses on that. So half of my days are spent uh, working actively with <clears throat> patients, uh, many of whom uh, are referred specifically for mind-body integration. They have simultaneously have challenges like high stress, anxiety, depression, trauma history, and Concurrently, they're experiencing fatigue or weakness or dizziness or chronic pain or headaches or these types of somatic conditions. And it's helping people get a more integrated approach to exploring that as opposed to splitting it apart. And, and that makes a lot of sense to me to see the person as, as a whole person. Uh, we always say that everyone is uh, an individual, which is true. I mean, DNA proves that we are individual. However, there's a very mechanical view when it comes to the uh, medical sciences of how to see uh, human beings and their patients. So I, I see it more as they see, here's a problem, let's troubleshoot and try to fix the problem. 
but we are just looking at a specific point and not, as you say, the whole person. And there are other factors that might play uh, a role there too, that are factors that should be involved, as you say, mental health, as you say, like some stress and, and, and other issues. Now, I blame uh, Descartes uh, on this, René Descartes, of like splitting the body and mind, because there are a lot of traditions who don't see uh, the human being as separated. This is my body and this is my mind. And I think that is causing a lot of issues and a lot of problems where you're fixing one thing, supposedly, but the problem still persists because the root problem is something completely different. Agree 100%. Um, you know, the, the Western model of healthcare is biomechanistic mm -hmm. and it's necessarily reduced both in its study, but also in its application. And I don't ever want to suggest that there aren't situations and cases, including in the scientific model where reductionism actually serves a useful purpose. Mm -hmm. I sometimes say to people, well, if you have a rock in your shoe, you take the rock out and it feels pretty good. Mm -hmm. But most of the health challenges that we experience aren't that simple. There's a complexity there. And in terms of this, the Cartesian uh, dualism, um, I, I see that tapping into a larger tendency of, of dualism and, and the very nature of human thought and thinking. It's either or. We don't tend to train ourselves into non-dualistic thinking. It's both and, perhaps on a spectrum. You know, and so uh, neurophilosophy and uh, the broad spectrum from pure materialism to pure dualism and everything in between um, is something that we, um, uh, I try my best to bring up the topic so that healthcare practitioners who maybe aren't immersed in anything integrative, anything whole person, you know, they're coming purely from the biomedical model, have at least a little bit of a sense of, of how important it is to talk about that because we don't yet know, the Western model doesn't know where consciousness actually originates or resides. Um, but my, my current stance, given that science doesn't know the answer to that is that for all things that happen at the level of mind, there will be found to be neurophysiological correlates in the, the actual embodied living system. That doesn't necessarily mean that the origin of mind or consciousness is material, but we don't really know that. So I try to take a stance that embraces that, you know, there's gonna be those neurophysiological correlates found, but that doesn't mean that that's the origin necessarily of consciousness and that leaves room for the possibility of nonlinear or quantum or even spiritual views or interpretations on the nature of our consciousness and our existence. Yeah, I, I am personally very interested in philosophy as well as psychology. But in philosophy, I, the term neuro neurophilosophy sounded very interesting when I when I read about that uh, information about you. And that is something that is definitely affecting our, our worldview. And the idea of science is yes, you do break it into parts, but then you have to put it all together again. And I I feel that that step is missing. And I'm not like dismissing science in any way, but. I think that's kind of limiting themselves and of having to find an answer in the either or thing. I, I, yes, you need it for logic, but the world is not logical. We are not necessarily logical. So it, it's just like an aspect of it, but we're not seeing the whole thing. For me, the, the Tao is, is a perfect embodiment of 
of that, of being a human being. And uh, we're both, you know, it's, it's all kind of integrated. It's all together. So philosophically speaking, you cannot just tear out one part and assume that it's, it's going to fix the whole problem when there is much more behind it or consciousness. When we look at the unconscious, so there's a part that we don't even know about. And so there's all these dimensions and realms that are not explored or not talked about. For me, uh, one of the most uh, uh, interesting things was to read a book about psychosomatic disorders. And so here you have the body reacting in a way uh, that is not uh, biological at all. It is purely with thought. It is mental health that is affecting it, but yet they do have these symptoms that are verifiable and they're true. We're not dismissing them in any point, but doctors are baffled by that. And so I think your approach of seeing the whole person of a holistic approach is really looking at all the different points and trying to find out what is, what is it that's causing this uh, disease or this condition. Right. <clears throat> and one of the challenges of training healthcare providers into whole person is the concept of transdisciplinary education. So when we look at the fact that, you know, historically, if we look at levels of consideration, spiritual, uh, cultural, um, social, uh, the psychological level, which might include personality or cognitive realm, uh, then we get into, you know, medicine, like the, the neurology, neuroscience, um, you know, we, and we continue moving down into specific tissues, body parts, cells, you know, mm -hmm. the atomic level. Mm -hmm. um, and we reach the subatomic sub sub or nonlinear level. When does it become circular? But the main scientific disciplines for each of those levels are split off from each other. So you have religion, sociology, clinical psychology, medicine, neuroscience. And so how do we respect the contributions of <clears throat> highly targeted educations and disciplines, but still train people how to have a transdisciplinary capacity that's safe, that respects professional uh, boundaries or scopes of practice, uh, but still enables people to help meet human needs within each individual across some of those levels. And that's the question I ask myself in my work as I design training materials and programs to advance the capacity of individual professions who are necessarily reduced, but to still be able to, to bring up and address and provide opportunities for the integration of these other levels within the person's experience, acknowledgement of them at a minimum, but actual support for, you know, for a physical therapist, for something psychological or for the social determinants or so on. Yeah, when, when you talk about the subatomic uh, particles, as I was reminded of a book as, a, as an undergrad, I saw it, it's called Powers of Pen. And they basically what they did is they, they showed us the, um, the images they have from space, like as far out as we can get with uh, stars and everything. And then they zoomed in onto earth and onto a person's hand in Florida, I think. And then deeper they go. And then at some point you realize the very last image, you say, wait, that was exactly the same image I saw as the first one. So I see things as a circle. So we are, it's not linear. We, are, we should see the world and uh, 
holistic and yeah, as, as a circle is something that is connected with each other. It's all within each other. That's why, again, I like the Taoist uh, principle of the yin and yang in a circle. So we, we need to, I think in a way, expand our way of thinking, but not linearly way, in a linear way, but in a circular way and finding the things that are related to other things. An example would be a stress that you mentioned and uh, the immune system. So you, the stress has a significant uh, amount of uh, influence on the impact on the immune system. So if you deal with it, you're going to have healthier people and you will guard off against disease. But I find medical professions are only there for a problem. And this, this is why I like the term of health and wellness. Health, yes. Acute issues, problems, yes. We need to go to the doctor. They will help us out. They'll fix the problem. But what about going further? What about the wellness? What about not just fixing a problem, but making sure that we are happy, that we uh, attain a certain of level of optimal functioning? And I don't think the medical uh, sciences are doing enough. I'm not sure if it is their realm anyway, but I think they could do more to promote wellness, prevention, those kind of things. Epigenetics also shows us that, uh, yes, even our, in terms of our genes, things could change. The environment, what we eat, how we live, um, how we deal with stress really impacts our health and who we are, right? So I think there's enough research and information and findings to uh, lead the medical sciences into into that realm to to explore it a bit more to be more open to it at least. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm going to comment on two things. So I'm going to go back to the first part, and then I'll return to the to the topic of stress and and uh, what we'll call salutogenesis, which is the preventative wellness oriented roots sort of approach. But the first comment is back to when you mentioned um, like the concept of the Tao for example, um, there is a uh, cultural facet to all of this in that Western civilization, which largely can, you know, is, is tied back to the early Greek philosophers um, and, and, and then to, the, to what we're living in today is uh, an individualistic culture. And there are many cultures still embedded uh, in the world, uh, including East, many Eastern cultures. Um, but I also think about right here in, in North America, the indigenous uh, First Nations and indigenous peoples were collectivist cultures. And so the idea of thinking of health from uh, some of these lenses, including a collectivist lens is foreign to much of the West and I, I, I think that we tend to, to get into that individualistic, I mean, even our, our call, which is very important, I'm not minimizing it because it is important that each person look at what, what actions do they wish to take at the individual level of responsibility for self-care. Um, but we also have found that the way in which the Western model uh, brings forth self-care inadvertently can reinforce reinforce an individualistic view of it. Um, and so it's me, 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 as opposed to we, 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 you know, to look at the influence of 
how my actions and my choices then affect those around me or the systems I work in and so on. And so I just want to acknowledge that first. Yes, I, I absolutely agree with that. But it's again, either or approach, why not both? I love both of those views. And I think they are not mutually exclusive. We can work right. with them and find the right balance between the two. And, and uh, individualism pushed to its extreme is just horrible. I mean, it's like not accepting social responsibility. I do whatever I want, anarchy, basically. And so collectivism to a really high extent is also denying who you are as a person. So let's find that middle ground. And I think that's missing from a philosophical point of view, from a sociological point of view as how we live as well and interact with each other. Yeah, and you just essentially named um, what, is it Kaproff? Uh, he wrote Living Systems, uh, Dynamic Living Systems Theory, or it's the, it's the textbook on living systems. And they acknowledge that. They say it's not, uh, it's when their collectivism and individualism are out of balance to each other. And that's what we're seeing, not that one is bad, you know, or good, better than, but it's the balance when they fall out of balance that we see this um, uh, disturbance either individually or collectively occurring. But individual individualism needs others to define itself. If you're individual on an island, then how can you be an individual? Because there's nobody else to compare yourself with. And I think we're just missing out. Uh, that's like a blind spot that, that we have. And like just as, as a whole, especially uh, I'm talking about Western culture where, where that is missing. And so um, one of the, the other things that is uh, always affecting us here is also in terms of health. Uh, there is a move also in terms of nutrition towards integrative eating and as well as uh, what we eat and how that affects our health. And that's actually also moving away because the, we don't need pills to lose weight. They don't actually work. And when we like uh, force ourselves to lose weight and we are like uh, counting calories and, and, and things like that, then we are actually doing harm to our body where there are other ways of approaching uh, things like nutrition. And you, you've written about nutrition and I'd like to know your insight about that, of finding here uh, health as well as the, the ideal weight for us that would work best. Um, what are your, your thoughts on this? Well, I'll tie that to the preceding discussion and link it back to stress as well in that uh, when we exist in high or prolonged levels of stress, it induces primitive physiological stress responses, famine response, they often say. And so our body's neurochemistry, our cortisol levels, our autonomic status is in a state that not only influences food choice, but food behavior, food consumption, and other levels. And so we begin to see these interactions of stress dynamics with food and nutrition. The bringing in the collectivist view is the reminder that we have systems in place that perpetuate the problem. So the food production system, ultra processed food, which has clearly been identified as a key source of inflammatory response in our systems, stacks on top of the stress of modern lifestyle. And if we go into certain communities, if we look at uh, health disparities, uh, racism in medicine, marginalized or minoritized communities, uh, the, the profound socioeconomic gaps that are greater than we've ever seen in history right now. 
that the choices that people make around this are subject to the choices available to them. So we can't go into certain communities and start preaching, oh, eat organic, healthy food when they're living in a food desert or they can't afford it or the systems isn't produced, you know, even presenting it to them sort of thing. And so there's this both and that we're addressing those larger uh, systemic and organizational and socioeconomic factors while supporting people into as much empowerment and individual capacity to make the best possible choices for them in those conditions. But we know that when people are existing physiologically in a, a stress state, uh, polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges, for example, talks about uh, defensive states that that physiological state actually restricts access to the range of behaviors that we can even come upon. So the, the physiological state is dictating the choices that people make to some degree. So that's where we come back to mind-body medicine and, and relational care where my ability to regulate myself, facilitate, and my ability to train others into physiological states that are consistent with parasympathetic rest and digest, homeostatic processes, safety, the neurobiology of safety um, are necessary to increase the, the capacity of people to cognitively and behaviorally enact educational information about good diet. And we know that education alone is, is insufficient at bringing about uh, uh, meaningful or sufficient behavioral change in people around these topics is we can go around and preach, eat well, and don't do, eat this and do this and exercise more. But if we're not addressing those underpinnings, we're, we're missing the mark. Absolutely. I mean, the, the main topic here, something that I've been uh, worried about, that I've uh, dealt with, that I've uh, uh, researched about is, is stress and just the, the impact it has, uh, our lifestyle, stressful lifestyle, the impact it has on, on our health like the connection between the two. And um, I, I reached a point where I was not healthy and I was at probably my worst, I was obese, I was officially obese and um, my health was declining and there's uh, diabetes, sleep apnea, a lot of uh, problems that came about and just, just generally feeling not happy with, with how things are going, always feeling uh, um, afraid right? in, a, in a constant uh, state of stress. And that leads to um, that led to an experience of a panic attack, which I had seen previously years ago uh, of uh, somebody, and I was like interested by it. And it's like, okay, what does it mean? I, I mean, I'm not judging it anyway, but what does that mean? And when it happened to me, I, I realized what that means. This is the alert. This is my body alarming me, body and mind kind of combining and say, hey you can't go on like this. There's something wrong, fundamentally wrong. And being able to listen to that and act upon it. So my way of trying to deal with it, I had two ways. I tried it intermittent fasting. And um, I also went to diabetic classes and they basically discouraged me from doing that. They said, this is the worst thing you can do. They said, you need to watch out. You need to have your five meals if necessary. Your blood sugar could, could go down, could go up and everything. And I decided to ignore them. Right? And I, I based my, uh, all my confidence, put my hope on Mark Matson, who talks about intermittent fasting. It, just by pure random chance on Twitter, I saw a video of his and I said, I'm going to try this out. My medical doctor said, 
that's the worst thing you can do. It's like, I'm going to try it out. And I lost uh, a, a lot of weight. I lost about 40 pounds. And, um, and, and things, that's part of it. So in terms of nutrition, that's um, actually not really a diet. I mean, it's, it's a lifestyle. And now I just skip breakfast because they are not as important as people say. And uh, even though science talks about it, I realized it was cereal uh, companies that were promoting that idea of it is the most important meal of the day. So that's another issue. And then I decided let's deal with what is causing my feelings of, of fear, insecurity, of stress. And uh, the root causes where I found through psychoanalysis, where I just kind of delved into it and found out these are certain problems. These are things that happened to me previously. I did not notice it, but now I'm realizing it by becoming conscious, I can actually act upon them. They're not controlling me anymore. I'm the one who's in control. Same way with intermittent fasting, I feel I can control when I want to eat. Yes, hunger is important, but I'm not a subject to it. I'm not a slave to it. I don't have to eat my food right now at this time. I have, I can control it. And the same way with all these unconscious impulses and issues that came out. And just one example for me, a, a, a profound example was why I was afraid of my uh, female boss who was evaluating me, was judging me for performance as, as an instructor. And I was listening to her and suddenly I said, she's not my mother. And just that thought, everything went well after that. It just like felt like a sense of relief. Yeah, she's not, right? And these kind of ghosts that we carry around with us that are haunting us, but we're not even realizing, that is for me a, a, a true source of, of panic, a true source of causing stress, of feeling unsafe because these are traumatic experiences we had as children. And it doesn't have to be anything major. It's just like just growing up as a child, we become traumatized by things we see, by parents, by friends, by things that happen to us. And just to be able to deal with it, to process it, I think that was for me a, a, a very profound insight. And it really helped me to get towards what I see a path of healing. There. And I also, in terms of also, um, I had headaches. I used to have migraines pretty much every week in, in that time. I was stressed with work. But then at some point, now it stopped. And I haven't had a headache in two months now, which is my new record. So uh, something is working, and I'm not taking medication. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I, I uh, will start backwards, but say I worked uh, when I lived in Minneapolis. Uh, I worked in a comprehensive uh integrated and integrative uh, headache center. It was led by a neurologist. We had a psychology, occupational therapy, physiotherapy, sort of team treating individuals with chronic headaches. Uh, so it's a complicated topic, but you've just presented a nice picture of all the, the actions and, and choices and things that you enacted that led to the shift in your system, in your in your body system, so you're now having less. And I, I, I'll go back to the psychology piece. I I am equally an advocate of uh, all that has been brought to us in terms of understanding the relevance of the past on the present. Um, 
I think it's a little tricky in terms of finding the best way to do that. So for example, our, our work with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, some people who come through a mind-body skills group uh, experience profound healing, awareness changes, um, and they consider it to be like therapy, but it's very distinct from psychotherapy in the way that it's delivered. Mm -hmm. And so the distinction is, how do we explore the past to increase our contextual understanding of ourselves in the present? So the distinction between psychotherapy that's predominantly regressive, which is taking people back sort of into the past, as opposed to, I, I often say, look back, but don't stare. Because when we gain these understandings about just how profound you know, I mean, we even know that epigenetics and historical trauma, grandparents and great grandparents and their lives can be impacting our stress reactivity via epigenetic mechanisms in the present. That doesn't necessarily mean I have to uh, psychoanalyze all of that to gain the understanding of its relevance. But for some people, it's, it's incredibly important. I mean, I've used psychotherapy uh, off and on through my life to great advantage. Um, to understand um, dynamics like family systems, you know, like the internal family systems therapy and these roles that we adopt and how we relate and respond. So this really important piece. And I, I think like a lot of the go, go, go that we are, this society of like trying to prove yourself and so on. In many ways we are, this is like childhood trauma because we are trying to please our parents. Because we're gonna, the parents, our parents always told us, you need to be someone, you need to work hard, you need to study, you need to have a good job. And that is like sticking with us in the back of our minds and it's pushing us. But instead of like pushing us in the, the correct direction, which I think the betterment of being a person, of being more compassionate, more loving, more generous, it's towards material wealth. It's towards making more money and getting that job and getting that promotion. And it's like a vicious cycle where you get trapped in it. But once you realize, you know, I don't really need all of this. This is just something, a voice that was going on in the past. And now I can find a way of being happy without having that, uh, that material wealth that we're striving for. And those who do have the wealth then realize we're not happy. You no, know, they are rich, they are famous, but they haven't reached uh, satisfaction and a, a personal satisfaction in their lives. So, I think that's like, once we look at it in a different way, I hope, and that's what I'm trying to do to, to um, uh, raise more awareness about that. It's like, you don't have to be someone in terms of having a good job or having um, money. You need enough to survive, of course, more than enough to, to live off relatively to live a good lifestyle, but the rest of it is really not worth it for many people, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, uh, one thing that came to mind is you're talking about the history that we each experience is just to point out to your listeners about um, that the adverse childhood experiences research ACEs is considered one of the top, at least top five. And some people are saying it's in the top two or three public health issues of our time is how widespread um, adverse or toxic stress exposure actually is in our lives, in, in our families, in our societies and cultures. And they've determined that um, there's a high association 
between exposure to early life stress, adversity, or trauma, depending upon which category or label you want to use, to the development of a wide range of health problems later, chronic pain, heart disease, mental illness, you know, uh, whatever it may be. And they suggest there's three routes, three main routes via which that influences people's health later. And one of them is what we've talked about, the stress response system. It alters how your nervous system regulates stress and demand at any level, environmental, psychological, physical stress is impacted in the developmental stages. The second is that because those experiences often are innately uncomfortable or unpleasant, at an unconscious level, people adopt coping strategies in a sense to medicate that. It's often unconscious. I tell people if that happens to us, it's not a weakness. We're not bad, we're not wrong. It's actually a, a healthy adaptive tendency to, to adopt coping strategies. So this can be things like substance use or you know, addictive behaviors or promiscuity or overeating or all of that. And then the third route is the epigenetic where they're looking at changes in how genes express themselves when exposed to stress. So they talk about these three main routes coming about and that they all can be explored and addressed if we're trying to help people address the impact of ACEs, their ACE score on their present health. But again, when I do this with people and, and psychologists may do this very differently because their scope of practice is different than mine as a rehab professional. But I approach it from educational. Um, did you know? Are you interested in learning more about this? And look back, but don't stare because I'm not here to take you back to that time frame, but to help support a, a bigger understanding of uh, impersonal factors, things that, that, you know, that don't evoke shame or blame, but that things that, you know, what happened to you and what, what, how might that have affected how your body is responding to stress in the present. So that's kind of the approach I do with it. And of interest to this, one last thing, and I'll let you jump back in. Uh, Dr. Vincent Felitti at, um, in Southern California, UCSD, who authored the original study in the early 1990s, and there's now been hundreds of, of, of follow-up studies, but I communicated with him about two years ago while I was developing a paper on this topic. And he shared with me that they have a, a, a database of around 130 or 140,000 patients in Southern California. And they sent them the ACEs questionnaire. Did you experience any of these things? Uh, and, and they brought it into their primary care session and all the doctor did was, uh, thank you for filling that out. I see you've lived through some very uh, difficult things. Uh, I'm sorry that that happened to you. They did not suggest you need psychotherapy. They just validated it. They acknowledged it. They might've given them a little bit of education about why they ask because they've shown that it can impact your health later on. And what they found in this population of people is that it led to a, a significant reduction in how much they needed healthcare over the following year. And they believe that there is a therapeutic effect, kind of a validation effect from actually naming it, but not pathologizing it and not suggesting or stealing the person's power that, oh, you need psychotherapy because you experienced abuse. You know, it's making those assumptions. 
So it was, it was caring, acknowledging, providing a space that it's named and leaving it at that. It doesn't mean that you don't offer people resources because some people then might say, well, gosh, you know, I, uh, now I'm thinking about that and I, it stirred up a lot. Would you like to have some, some resources for that? Are you interested in, in more education or some psychotherapy or someone that might help you look through that a little more? But it's not assumed that a person needs it because when the assumption is made, it steals some of their power. And the fact that they are innately resilient, even if this stuff is affecting them, they carry an innate resilience and a capacity. So I, th that's kind of the attitude that I bring to it, having learned about it, talked with him about that data, looked at the studies. Um, I, I do think we need to be mindful as healthcare practitioners and how we introduce the topic to promote safety around it. Because for some people it is innately not feeling safe to talk about their past, uh, but there are ways to do that too. So. Yeah, I will slightly disagree on, on, on both of those things. One okay. of the things is I think we all need psychotherapy. We all need it. And it's something because and goes back to the, the medical issue of like, you go to the doctor if you have a problem, like let's, I have something in my shoe, let's get it out, you know? But it's not like, is my shoe comfortable? Do I have a comfortable shoe? That you don't go to a psychotherapist and say, I want to be happier. And that rarely happens. You go because you do have certain issues that come up. And so my point is we need to, and probably this is why we have um, wellness uh, coaches and life coaches, because they're, they are thriving. I find they are thriving nowadays because they're addressing that gap. Psychotherapy, when you go to it, does not mean you have a problem, but we see it and we use it in that sense. I would say, let's go, and that's what I want to do, and say to people, I want to make you happier. I want to move you in the right direction towards optimal health. And one of the ways of doing it, uh, for me, in my view, is feeling your emotions, feeling the trauma that you had. It's going to be very uncomfortable, yes, but you are safe. And to give the person the safety, but also going through these uncomfortable experiences, that's how it all started for me. It was a very uncomfortable feeling. And I said, I don't want to go there. And then I said, no, I will. I will face this. And it is very difficult. It's very challenging. But when you come out of that tunnel, you feel relieved. So instead of saying, like, you know, stay away from it, I'd say go for it. Of course, be safe, right? You don't want to be overwhelmed. That is when people need a professional um, practitioner to, to guide them, perhaps. But if you could do it on your own, why not? And this is the problem because we're suppressing, we're repressing emotions. We're like trying to push it down and, and not expressing it, not feeling it. And I think that is what's accumulating. I see it as a pressure cooker that keeps building and then it explodes in a panic attack or uh, addiction, a substance abuse or, or worse, suicide. And so I think we need to find a way of releasing that. And uh, yes, it's not an easy way. It will take a lot of effort and pain, but it is for the benefit in the end. You will benefit from it. And uh, I am using myself as, a, as, a, as an experiment. I'm the guinea pig here. And I can tell you that a lot of things do fall off, do go away, do dissolve by really going head on and facing them instead of like pushing back or pulling back. And I think our society is not embracing that. Of, it's getting better. They say express your feelings and so on. It's like in, in that direction. 
but that toughness that you know i cannot show any feelings what's worse this used to be just for men now it's for women as well so it's it's we are like step, taking steps back where people are not open to express the more important parts of being a human again which i said is not material pursuits or success it's about being happy being content being curious being uh, loving being caring all these things are much more important than what society is is putting in front of us as the idea yeah so i'm going to go back to the psychotherapy piece and and clarify one thing if all psychotherapy fit um what you've described then i could see that statement holding some truth mm -hmm. but all psychotherapy is not created the same and the truth is there is a huge stigma around mental health across many cultures and so there's aversion and avoidance to tapping into psychotherapeutic models or support some of that problem comes in the models themselves because they're not very phenomenological they're not a person-centered heuristic but some of it comes from the stigma and shame that's embedded around that so if we if we broke that down i certainly agree my personal belief is that everyone can benefit from understanding core psycho psychological constructs and ideas as applies to their upbringing their family of origin their culture their trauma their aces but it's not going to happen as well so you talked about life coaches there's a growing number of of uh i don't know i we don't use this term as much anymore but allied health professions integrative health professions that are meeting this need and so the, the interesting thing is when i worked in this headache clinic um the the pt and the ot were integrated they were mind body trained more of the patients dramatically more of them chose to follow through with the PT and OT planet here than they did psychology for this exact reason. Didn't mean the psychologist was a bad person, but because of the innate stigma and shame. So that's where transdisciplinary or integrative training models for PTs and OTs, we get our needs met in many places. And the last thing is individuality because I do think that some people are innately more suited to address and understand these psychological facets with a spiritual director or with a health coach or with their PT or OT or with a psychologist or a group model. So we teach mind body skills groups and we have a lot of people say, I got more from that eight week group that I just took than I did in the last eight years of psychotherapy. Now, that's not true for everyone. I don't want to make it sound like the, the, the group model is perfect for everyone either, but it's getting needs met in different ways. So clarifying that, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, yes, I completely agree with you on that point. I mean, I, it, it's there is so much that is good in terms of if you speak of psychotherapy, and there's so much that is, I think, in my view, terrible, and I don't agree with it. But what I like about, let's say, a particular psychoanalysis is the openness of like, when you get analyzed as an analyst, you get analyzed every couple of years and so on, just to see, okay, are you on track? Are you doing well? So it's not something that is just for your patients. It's something that you go through. Freud would analyze his, his followers and so on. And I think that is something that, that we need. And one of the issues I have with psychotherapy in, in, uh, specifically 
is uh, I find a lot of them I talk to, and I've had interviews with psychologists, I talk to them as well, uh, teachers, instructors, and I find like a lot of them do have issues themselves. And I find if you are not able or capable of dealing with your own issues, how can I learn from you? You know, it's like you have to go through that. That's why a health and wellness advocate is something that I'm striving for and say, look, I've been there. I've experienced it. This is not just pure theory that I picked up academic uh, studies. This is something that I've also gone through. And those people are usually better spokespeople than the trained professionals. In many cases, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not generalizing, but I find that sometimes I don't feel that when I talk to somebody who is um, claiming to help others, but I say, well, first help yourself, analyze yourself. There are some issues that I can sense in you that you need to deal with first before you go out to help others. And that just muddles everything and confuses everything. So in that sense, I completely agree with you. I think it's not all equal. It's not all good, as you said. Yeah, and I, I concur. Our, our training modules with the Center for Mind-Body Medicine are built upon apply to self first that if you don't really go there, you know, you can only take other people as far as the places that perhaps you've explored. That's not an absolute statement, of course, I got to be really careful with that, but, but that, that, that is vital. And it's also true for the book that we, that, that uh, I developed over the last two years, which will be out in May. It's a fairly comprehensive textbook attempting to delineate what integral theory and integrative care means for rehabilitation medicine, including mind-body integration in a safe way. And the entire book is designed and repeatedly says, understand self, apply to self first, you know, before deploying it sort of thing. So that, that, that I agree is vital. And one other thing I just wanted to come back to real quick is that you mentioned the, the, the internalization of emotion. Um, you probably have read him. Uh, he, he's in um, he's in Vancouver, Canada. Um, Gaber Mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. in his book, uh, when your body says no, when the body says no, he talked about four common tendencies that people develop in human behavior and human psychology that emerge from from adaptive patterns as children and stress, and it's uh, caring more for the emotional needs of others than your own. Uh, having an excessive sense of duty, role, or responsibility that then causes you to lose connection with your authentic self or needs, mm -hmm. the suppression of so-called negative emotions. He, he uses so-called because the understanding of emotion is innately innocent and a guide to us. It alerts us to unmet needs, but they're uncomfortable to us, so they get categorized as bad or negative. And then uh, believing you're responsible for how other people feel and that you must never disappoint anybody. So you never say no. And he says, these are actually the roots of chronic illness and disease. Well, they interact with nutrition and stress. And so you see this sort of setup. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. I have a webinar with him next week. So I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah um, so point I want to make and um, oh, I think I just. I just lost it, <laughs> lost my train of thought. But um, I, I, I think just like, oh yeah, there was a conference I went to and uh, it was um, a, a brilliant conference uh, on, uh, by, a, by a psychologist. 
And at one point, at the end, actually, there was a question and answer period. And one person, and he was an elderly man, um, asked a question and he said, why did I, did I not hear this before? Why is it just now I'm hearing this information because it would have changed my life? And that really moved me. And I said, and that's what's really driving my efforts here with my blog and with my writing and with talking to people is really, it's like, I want people to know because this can help you. This can literally save your life. And it's not because I'm not saying like, I have the answers, but it's because you might find something that will touch you and change you. Like Van Gogh says, he wants to make art that touches people. And he did. You know, and in the same way, I hope that there are certain messages that can come through that can really help people because I strongly believe in that this is the product that I, I do say it works and I can endorse it. I'm not selling things that uh, are, are just garbage. It's not snake oil. It's actual like it's working wonders, although it's different for every person. And of course, individuality, everyone is different, perceives the world differently. But I think there's a core where we all connect. And we all need that safety, however way you get it. We need that. And for me, one way, and again, it, negative emotions, I don't see them as negative anymore. I'm not scared of them. I actually embrace them. Uh, I, I don't like uh, necessarily just fall up on it, but I do embrace them, accept them. And just like, again, going to the Tao, it's like, it's part of the process. It's actually something that is helping me if I listen to it if I bring out the unconscious. And Erich Fromm uh, says, that's the goal of, uh, of psychoanalysis, to make the unconscious conscious. And that is such a relief. And when you go for a counseling session and you talk about things, uh, it, there's a sense of relief because it came out. When you write uh, something or create art, there's a sense of relief if it's personal art, because all this that was bottled inside came out. And I think that space is really important where people feel comfortable of, yes, talking about what is uncomfortable, you know, and having that security. And that is something I strive for. And also my personal relationships, like, you know what, talk about it. Let's talk about it. Because when I look back, it was something that was not talked about and in, in the family. So it's, this needs to come out. We need to heal that way. And, um, I like your embody your mind, your motto. I really like that of um, basically connecting here the mind, mind and with the body. It kind of reminds me of also a theory of uh, learning that is uh, embodied simulation, how we learn language. And it's, it's fascinating because the idea is we have an image in our mind and then we connect the word with the image a simplified version of it, right? So uh, I think of a cup and I have an idea in my head. This is what a cup is. And I connect the two with each other. And then from there, we build like different concepts and different ideas and so on. And this is the idea of imagining things is really, I think, helping us by not being stuck. Because when you imagine that things are gonna get better, I'm not saying go into a fancy or fantasy or anything like that, I'm saying, you can imagine a better world, a better, a healthier being that you could be, and then take the steps to get there. And that's what athletes do a lot of times. They imagine the play and everything, and then they end up performing better just because they imagined it. It's like they were actually practicing. You don't have to physically practice. You can practice with your mind. And that's why I like the idea of embody your mind because you're taking both parts and you basically, you can put them together. Yeah, it's not either or again. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, two, two things I want to emphasize that, that came up for me as you were sharing. And one is your, your efforts to get the word out. I've, I've heard that so many times as well, too, about why, why has no one, why didn't I learn this? Or why didn't I hear this 20 or 30 or 40 years ago sort of thing? And I hear that all the time. Uh, and, and so the efforts to um, increase, disseminate, to spread, to share, this is, is vital. Um, Dr. Felitti, who did the ACES research, said to me the, the true, the, the, like the fastest uh, approach to change if we were going to do it would be in primary, um, uh, like primary parenting and widespread public health initiatives that really got this out in mass to people to begin to understand. But he said the, 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 the laboriousness of it's, it's, it, it, you're working with systems and organizations, so it's a lot slower than that in reality, which is unfortunate. But it reminds me that in medical practice alone, there's published data that it takes on average 17 years for healthcare to change what it's doing after the evidence was very clear that you need to not be doing this anymore. So it's kind of slow and I know it's frustrating for people, you know, I know it is for me in terms of the, the spreading of whole person integrative rehab that it's, you know, it's frustrating. And, uh, but the but last the results should speak for themselves. I mean, it's not something we're just making up. There are results that uh, scientifically we can see it. There are, uh, there's evidence for it. It's evidence-based. And uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily important, but there are results on a personal level. And that for me is much more important when you say, okay, this has made a difference for me. How it worked, I don't know, but I don't really care because it's working for me and not trying to understand everything because I believe there are, there's also limits to our knowledge where you say, you know what, I don't think I can understand that and that's okay. And it's that push is like, we have to know everything. No, we don't. There's certain parts where I say, you know, this is as far as it goes. And that's fine. I cannot say if there is a God or not, what uh, it would look like, how it would work. I cannot give you those answers, but I feel good about what I have as my answer. And that's working for me, you know? And it's, it's, it's that again, clear cut answer, yes or no, either or. And I think that is doing more harm and is fragment, fragmenting people in different parts and which one do I choose? For me, one of the main reasons was I knew about all of this, but I never applied it until one day I talked to a friend I, I, I respect, a fellow instructor. And I said, you know, this unconscious business and stuff, they say this, uh, the name, your name affects who you are later on. And I read about this and I said, it's true. And those like, those two words, it's true, changed my mind completely about it, my views about it. And I said, yes, it is. But it's, it, sometimes we need that affirmation. We need people uh, like you who say, yes, this is the correct way of doing it. And just that might be enough to spark somebody to go on their own journey of, of, of healing and health. And I think that is uh, very important. Positive messages, of course, uh, and not blaming others, not shaming others, that never works. That never works and it cannot work. But to uh, accepting responsibility for one's actions, yes, absolutely. Living in reality, Yes, that's very important. So finding that that balance too of not saying, yeah, everything is fine. This is why I didn't like uh, positive psychology for a while because it seemed like, yeah, just be happy. Well, I'm not, what do I do? How do I get there? You know, and that's not the reality. You can't just think yourself happy because there is there are other factors involved as well. 
And that comes back to the importance of emotional expression because there is a version of positive psychology and it's now being named readily. It's toxic positivity. Mm -hmm. it, yes. It's rooted in experiential avoidance where people don't actually, you know, experience and feel mm -hmm. those emotions. And we, we chose the phrase for the chapter in our book on uh, self-expression, uh, avenues of expression you know, mm -hmm. to help people uncover what are the avenues that most optimally allow you to express your interior, mm -hmm. you know, to express your emotions, to feel them, to express them, to move through them, you know, to not get stuck in them. And, and the coping mechanisms to protect us, which is natural, of course, but they're not helping in many ways, you know, and when, when you say, okay, I can't talk to you about this because I'm busy, and that kind of like, Block, I'm busy and I'm not going to talk to you about these things. It's not, uh, it's not helping yourself and it's not helping the other person. And the idea of being busy is something that people like uh, seem to take pride in. But uh, in the end, it's like, no, you're just making yourself not available. You're making yourself stressed. Busy is another word for stress in my view because you've got too much on your plate. You don't have time to uh, take care of yourself, for self-care, for your family, for doing things that, that you love to do. So it's like, it's again, for me, this was a tough part of finding that work-life balance and uh, not being stressed over work matters and have that interfere with, with, my, with my private life. And that is, again, going back to our balance of uh, something that is not too much one and not too much the other. The idea of eustress also that's going about, in a way, I agree with that, but that's kind of distorting things. I'm saying, yeah, stress is fine. Um, it is fine if it leads you towards um, insight, knowledge about yourself. If it's not just something that's pushing you, but that's something uh, just pushing you in, in any direction, but that's something that you can use for your own benefit to make sure that it leads to more, more uh, tranquility, more happiness, and so on. In that sense, yes. But stress, how it's felt, how I see it as toxic stress, as uh, uh, something chronic stress, that's not good. And we're filling our bodies with all these chemicals that are just bad for us. And it's basically like doing drugs on a daily basis. We just don't do it necessarily physically, but we are doing it with our bodies, with our mind. And it does have an effect on, on our bodies and our health. And I think that's something that a lot of people just ignore. They see stress is something good. I'm stressed, that means I am important, but uh, no, it doesn't really work that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there has been a glorification <laughs> of stress in many ways. Um, the, the original coining of you, you stress is Hans Selye um, mm -hmm. uh, coined that, I, I believe, and he aimed for it to understand that that the stress response is actually not just normal but it's necessary for neurodevelopmental purposes mm -hmm. but it is when it the um, that that threshold like the yerkes dotson curve where up to a certain point it's beneficial for performance and but then at a certain point everything begins to decline and that's that toxic stress threshold when the, you know the the current science is allostatic load you know when the allostatic load reaches a threshold where our ability, our system's ability to mitigate the stress in a healthy way is uh, exceeded. Um, that that's when, you know, at a biological level, it begins to have the adverse impact on our health. And so, you know, agree, agreeing with the idea that, you know, what is that, where is use stress as a concept healthy, but when are people actually using that to, 
as an avoidance or coping or, or even glorification, right? You know, look at me, I, mm-hmm. I worked a, a 14 hour day and yeah. worked out and, you know, and it's like the system. Or even the idea of perfectionism. I am perfectionist. I see that as actually a health problem when people say they're perfectionists. You want to do your best, of course, but being a perfectionist is for me a sign of insecurity. And I think that is, and people, that's glorified as well. It's like, oh, okay, a workaholic. That is an addiction, but uh, we don't necessarily see it as that in our society. And I think, yes, that's a problem. You have a serious issue, you know, stop working, like stop, you know, cut down on your booze and stuff. So I, I think we, again, that mind shift that we need to see things a bit differently. And it's as simple as that. It's like a light switch that goes on and suddenly everything makes sense. But now that it makes sense, we have to walk the path and it's a thorny path. It's uncomfortable, but uh, it is the right direction. Yeah. Um, thank you very much for talking to me and for, for taking time and for sharing your, your insight and your wisdom. I, I really appreciate uh, talking to you. So um, you have your, is that a website, a project? Can you talk a bit more about uh, Embody Your Mind or anything else that uh, you'd like to share here about yourself? Uh, yeah, um, I'll, I'll first just a, a little thought came to mind. Uh, okay, you'll sure. have to bring that topic back to Gaber Mate next week about perfectionism. Uh, and how that links into what he's teaching. I just uh, mm-hmm. had a conversation the other day with someone about uh, how much science is there around perfectionism and it's linked to shame uh, or insecurity and how does that then translate into health? And that's part of what I think Gabber's, you know, really focused on. So bring that back. Yeah, listen yeah. To yeah no, excellent. Yeah, and I, it came to me when I watched a documentary on Orson Welles, who was like saying, okay, he was making this film, but he never finished it because it had to be perfect. And I said, I thought to myself, you never finished it, you know? So you just like wasted your opportunity and time. You should have finished it and be like confident, like this is what I've made. Now, whether you like it or not, I don't really care. For me, that's the true artist. It's like, this is the true expression of myself, of my work. And it's as good as I I could make it within the constraints that we have of time, of, you know, all the other constraints that we have. But this is the best I can come up with. And I'm proud of it, I'm confident except, uh, you know, where people just don't do anything because they are supposedly perfectionists, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, I will internalize to heart what you just said deeply about about the uh, the vulnerability I feel in releasing this large-scale book in a couple of months, May 21st, it'll be out. It's already posted on Amazon for pre-order, but uh, it's Integrative Rehabilitation Practice. And in the spirit of what you just said, uh, it, it really is is what came forth in me, and we did our very best in sort of putting it together, referencing it, bringing authors together who have extensive clinical experience about whole person care, and I'm sure it's not going to be perfect. It'll be improved upon. It's a work in progress over time, but it's a contribution, and it really came from my my experience of creativity, so I'm taking that to heart, and my, my own website is embodyyourmind.com. Uh, for any rehab professional who might be watching this, I do have online uh, continuing education uh, opportunity in integrative rehab, which is integrativerehabpractice.com. And for those interested in the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, we uh, nearly a 30-year history of work uh, internationally in population-wide stress and trauma relief and wellness promotion. That's cmbm.org. So you can check out any of those. And if for any chance there's a listener in Tucson, I have a, a, a patient practice at Simon's Physical Therapy. 
Yeah, and I will put all the information on my blog too when I when I put the article together. Thanks so much. You have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you for coming here and for talking to me. And uh, yes, thanks yeah, so much. Great. Thank you for all you're doing. Take care. Thank you.